I think a lot about food. Even before the pandemic, when everyone's home cooking projects got a little bit more ambitious and a little bit more sourdoughy, I was always in a constant state of meal planning. Maybe it's a cliche to say that that's my love language, but it's true. Something I inherited from my Chinese family, in which hunger is tied to the heart. It's like the food writer Nigel Slater once said, making something delicious for someone to eat really is as good as life gets. And cities are blessings for the food-minded. Because they're places where people from around the world live, I can access various spices and ingredients from the grocery store, or just as easily run out to a restaurant to have just about anything I feel like eating. But even though I spent all that time thinking about food, in terms of flavors and fill and friends and family, I have to admit, I didn't think enough about how it actually, you know, got there. I live in Toronto, so I'm far away from where my Mexican avocados are grown, where my saffron is gathered, or where the chicken I eat is raised and, well, to put it bluntly, processed. And when I'm going out to a restaurant these days, which still feels like a strange kind of thrill, I found myself asking, how have the people who made me this food been able to stick it out and make a living over the course of the pandemic? Cities are life, and life needs energy. To understand life, we have to understand how we're fueling it. So on this episode, we're going to talk to some people who will hopefully get you to think a little bit differently about how you get your food. What you might learn may not be so appetizing, but it'll be good for you, I promise. I'm Adrian Lee, and you're listening to City Space. Corey Mintz has been a food writer and critic for years, for publications like The Globe and Mail, The New York Times, and The Walrus. He also has a new book out called The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them, and What Comes After. We spoke with Corey from his home in Winnipeg to talk about, well, what comes after. For the hospitality industry as we emerge from the pandemic, for owners and diners alike who want to meaningfully invest in restaurants, and for the takeout apps and how they affect those businesses. Here's some of our conversation. So obviously the pandemic has thrown some of the aspects that we've taken for granted about going to a restaurant out the window. How do you think, whether it's for better or for worse, COVID-19 has changed the way we eat out? Well, I'd like to hope it's increased an awareness of the dynamics within a restaurant. A lot of that stuff that seemed kind of hidden behind a curtain has become very public, but at the same time, people have become so used to the disconnection between the restaurants and themselves. You know, there was that prediction that on a five-year timeline, every restaurant had to adapt to the majority of their revenue coming from delivery and takeout. They had to figure out with a five-year timeline pre-pandemic. And then starting March 2020, everyone had to figure out how to do that within five or six days. It just sped up what was already going on. People being removed from the experience of sitting down to enjoy food with people. And all of a sudden, everyone was totally dependent on takeout and delivery. And people began to miss that real quick. The two things that happened very quickly from that were finally the topic that third-party delivery companies were exploitative became much more understood by the general public, I'd say within six or eight weeks of the onset of the pandemics. And people began to miss the actual experience and realize what it is that feels so special about being served and the art of hospitality. 
Well, so before the pandemic, restaurants faced a bit of a demand problem. You write about this in the book. You know, too few customers were willing to dine out before this whole thing happened. And now there's, you know, on top of that, a growing labor shortage. So there's now a supply problem that restaurants are facing. And this was happening over the course and before the pandemic. So can you talk a bit about how we got to that place? Well, if we're framing it as an oversupply, there were too many restaurants. In a city like Toronto, there's 6,000 restaurants. There's something like in Canada, one restaurant for every five or 600 people. And the same in the States. How can they keep them filled at lunch and at dinner? The competition was too fierce for that many businesses to not only survive, but to thrive. The pandemic was a brutal culling for so many of those businesses, but it also introduced a new wrench to restaurants, which was that there had been a labor problem for many years. But for the first time in their careers, many people had real time off to think about whether or not this worked for them. And many, as much as a third, said it doesn't. That kind of triggered the third rail of the industry, which was, okay, for years we said we couldn't pay people more for the hard work that they do because we'd have to raise prices. Like the cost of labor had to go up because employers had to become competitive for the first time in many years. And so you've seen wages go up in the last year, not enough to fill up every restaurant and not even enough to keep up with the rate of inflation. But as a result, menu prices have had to rise along with that. And wages is a part of that, right? I mean, before even the pandemic, we're talking about a certain culture that folks might not be aware of when they're eating at the front of house. What's going on back there? Wages is the sort of easy black and white thing that you can quantify, right? And the bottom line is, for the most part, in your sort of urban chef-driven restaurant, the structure of the pay is that 20% of revenue comes in the form of tips. People think of it as a, a volunteer thing that you give at the end of their meal. But ultimately, if your meal costs $10 and you tip $2, which is 20%, your meal costs $12. But instead, first, that 20% is going to one group of workers who, in the end, for the most part, have traditionally earned about double what the kitchen makes. Now, that's why you've got a, a problem over the past five or six years of a whole generation of young people saying, this doesn't work for me anymore. But along with purely money, there's other less tangible stuff that just has to do with the industry modernizing. We're talking really simple stuff like people getting their schedules two weeks in advance or having actual worker protections and accountability from management, support for addiction and mental health. You know, addiction is the highest in any industry in hospitality. Along with all these problems goes that cultural divide by front of house and back of house as exacerbated by the tipping system. Well, you brought up tipping, so let's talk about tipping. I mean, in their book, you argue that people don't understand it, that too often it privileges the diner who believes he or she has the right to decide what a server earns, or rather what a restaurant staffer earns, depending on how the split goes. And certainly, even before our current labor crunch, diners have for a long time misunderstood how much they should pay for dining out, right? Is tipping really the right way for diners to try to take that into their own hands, to try to bring in the money to fix some of the systemic problems that restaurants face. Shouldn't that come from somewhere else? It's not the silver bullet for fixing what's wrong with restaurants. It's part of a suite of solutions. You know, I mean, there's top line, more ambitious antidotes for what is inequitable about restaurants. And for the books, you know, I've interviewed people in Toronto and San Francisco and Boston who are operating, yes, without tipping but also doing different models like profit sharing with staff, employee ownership, open book management, different ways of compensating 
rewarding or engaging with staff in a way that, and this is key, this is why they're doing what they're doing, in a way that invests in people and says, I want you to grow in this business with me for the next five years, as opposed to being transient. For diners who have gotten more restaurant literate in recent years, and also for restaurateurs who want to modernize, what is the sort of, as you said, the suite of solutions that you think have and will work? I love the question because I love you identifying that there are diners who have gotten, I think you use the term, more restaurant literate. I think that's fantastic. That's the first part of it. You know, to start, I really encourage people to ask about how tips are divided. It's a totally reasonable thing. It's not as taboo as you think. I mean, I spoke with the restaurateur recently and I I asked her, I said, because I'm recommending that people ask you about money and tips. How taboo is that? And she said, people ask me about that about once a week these days. Someone identifies me as the owner and they come over and they ask how tips are divided. And I said, pre-pandemic, how often did that happen? She said, not once, never. So there's already been a big shift there. I advocate for people to ask about where stuff comes from, but I think about how people are treated is a really good starting point. I think doing away with the third-party delivery apps from your phone, I don't think we need it. Yes, there's a limit to ethical consumerism and the choices that you and I make. The next battle, it's already on the horizon, is a fight over the categorization of workers, the couriers for these companies, and attempts to regulate them in any capacity. So cities like New York, Denver, San Francisco put temporary commission caps on third-party delivery companies. So did Toronto eventually after many months of dithering. New York, when they attempted to make those caps permanent, faced a, and continues to face a lawsuit from those companies. And at the same time, In California, they passed a law that basically made all independent contractors for these companies be classified as workers and thus as employees. So that is coming wherever you are. So caring about these things and making them a public conversation is probably more valuable in terms of contributing to a better restaurant culture than simply your or my decision to delete these apps from my phone, which we should do anyways. We'll have more after this. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. For a hundred years, Novo Nordisk has been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. So we talk a lot on the show about how a lot of city life is connected to other social factors, right? And one thing I thought was fascinating in the book was about how you wrote about how ordering takeout from delivery services and how that's connected to the broader malaise people may feel around, say, not being able to afford to buy a house in the city they live in anymore. I'm not 100% of the Korean here, but you raise this phrase or idea of tsibal biyong which is sort of purchases made out of broader dread and kind of taking control over what you can control. And as someone who has made, you know, takeout delivery orders, that resonates as part of why I'm doing it. It's convenient. I can do it. But can you speak a little more to that? How much of that dread is fueling a lot of the inequity in our food industry? Yeah, I'm glad you said it. So I didn't sound as cynical, but there is a a nihilism at the center of the marketing strategy of a lot of these companies, right? And part of what they pitch is order delivery to free up your time to do the things you want to do. And that's always sort of the technologist ethos is like technology frees us to do things we would rather do. But the reality is 
we have less time because our cost of living is higher than previous generations and we have to work harder to pay for the same amenities. So it is to me horrifying when you see a series of ads that basically said like, you don't have time to read this ad, much less make dinner. For that to be the sales, you're trying to sell me something and you're starting by telling me my, my existence is so miserable. I don't have 10 seconds to read this subway ad, let alone do something wholesome like feed myself. And I think that's so, that is cynical. That, that is the mean-spirited part, but they know it's true. We are busier, but not because we're all having so much fun. We're all just like, no, my boss thinks they can slack me at two in the morning. So I'm exhausted because I work way more than my parents ever did. And I'm going to reward myself by ordering something that gives me the serotonin rush of A, not having to think in advance about dinner, which is its own form of luxury. It's not just the convenience of someone bringing me. It's the convenience of freeing me from having to think from the moment I woke up to the moment I get hungry later in the day from what am I going to do for dinner? The freedom to say, I'm going to wait until I get hungry around dinner time to go, now what am I going to eat? And then it comes to me, but then we get hooked on that. Then we go, as is the intention, well, I can't live without this convenience. I understand that this is a genie that's not going back in the bottle. You know, once people are hooked on a certain level of convenience, that's not changing. So even beyond the pandemic, you know, our cities are evolving. They're getting denser, more populated. Greater percentages of our sort of national population are driven to these places. You got to feed them. So based on all the time you spend on this topic, looking down the line, maybe a generation from now, how do you both hope and foresee that restaurant culture, whether it's dining in or taking out, how do you hope it evolves? The problem is that we saw a huge meteor crash into the restaurant industry and close so many restaurants. And the specific tragedy of that is the majority of restaurants that they closed, that this pandemic closed permanently, are the kind of independent restaurants that we want as part of our neighborhood, you know, as part of the fabric of our community, as opposed to chain restaurants and fast food restaurants. I would expect that because despite the oversaturation of restaurants and specifically of chain restaurants, the market abhors a vacuum and those spaces will be filled likely by more chain restaurants. What I would like to see is the independent restaurants that replace them to be more thoughtful, A, as members of the community, and I'd really like to see newer restaurants skew more towards uh, specialty and being a bit more small scale in terms of having a shorter menu, having a smaller dining room, something that a smaller staff is able to execute rather than something that requires 20 bodies in the kitchen for which you can't pay everybody fairly. Thanks to Corey for joining us. His book, The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Know Them and What Comes Next, is out now. Next up, we'll move from the restaurant to the farms themselves. Food grows outside cities. So how does it get into cities? And why do we do things that way? More after this. Since the beginning of our company, Novo Nordisk, 100 years ago, we have been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives. And while people today are living longer than ever before, rising rates of obesity and diabetes threaten the health and prosperity of future generations. Together with our partners, we are going beyond medicine to strengthen disease prevention and early intervention, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca.
Carolyn Steele lives her professional life at the intersection of food and cities. As an architect, she became the inaugural studio director of the Cities Program at the London School of Economics. She's also lectured at Cambridge's School of Architecture about the interplay of food and cities, given TED Talks on the subject, and written a couple of books, including her latest, Setopia, How Food Can Save the World. She joined us to talk about how cities have lost some of their essential connections to the food that fuels their citizens, and what it is we can do about it. Here's our conversation. I wanted to start from the beginning, maybe with a bit of history you can walk us through, because we didn't always live in dense cities, you know, far away from the farm sources of our food, after all. They're Cities themselves are a somewhat recent invention stemming from the Industrial Revolution in the West. So can you speak a bit to where we came from and why we chose to live in cities? Obviously, for the first couple of million years as humans were hunter-gatherers, and so we followed the food around, as it were. And then to vastly oversimplify a complex story, some of us started farming, but which basically means kind of domesticating plants and animals. And in the case of plants, that means staying in one place. And once you start really focusing on farming, you can create enough crops such as grain, and grain is fairly critical, that you can feed large non-food producing populations. And therefore it becomes possible to start living in cities. Of course, as cities did get, as you say, bigger and denser, grain becomes more and more critical as the food that feeds them because it's easy to store. You can grow it in surplus and all the rest of it. So grain really has been critical to uh, urban civilization. But in the beginning, it was really a question of, as I say, the co-evolution of agriculture and urbanity over the course of several thousand years. But what sort of has changed? And again, there, there are all these complex factors, but things really started shifting in terms of agrarian lifestyles versus urban lifestyles really around the Industrial Revolution. And that's it's certainly in part because people shifted the nature of work, the nature of work shifting the focus of, I guess, our communal societies. And so much has been written, of course, about what has been gained by city life. And there has certainly been plenty. And as far as food goes, that includes economies of scale, right? You know, you have these places where large amounts of food it's cheaper and more affordable and it's easier to access if you're everyone sort of in one place. But what has been lost by leaving behind and putting away some of that agrarian connection? Yeah, it's a really important question to ask. And I don't think it's one that's asked often enough. The pivotal moment really comes with industrialization and critically, actually, the railways. Because if you think about what it takes to feed a city, it's not just producing enough food. And I've already mentioned that grain is the critical food in that respect, but it's getting it physically into the city. And in the ancient world, the only way you could do that was over water, which is why Rome, for example, was able to grow the size it did, because it imported its food from all across the Mediterranean by ship. But it was, you know, the trains that really sort of not only, as it were, made it possible for food to travel rapidly and quickly for the first time, but then opened up huge areas of the quote unquote new world. And then that land became really the world's first industrial breadbasket. And this changes everything because what happens is there's more grain for the first time in history than people can actually eat. So what happens to the grain? It gets fed to cows. You know, so we get the invention of quote unquote cheap meat, which of course doesn't actually exist. We're now discovering all the consequences of that. It is critical to the evolution of the industrial city. And as you say, for a time, it looked like we'd solved the problem of how to feed ourselves. But, you know, we have never solved this problem. We just moved 
from producing food in one way to producing food in a different way. As to what's been lost, I mean, where do you begin? I would say a direct connection to the land, which I think is fundamental to our sense of home and well-being, an understanding of the value of food. So as I say, the creation of this illusion of cheap food that doesn't actually exist. And now we're seeing all the externalities in the form of soil erosion, climate change, pollution, water depletion, a mass extinction that we're entering because of the use of chemicals on the land. So we've lost our natural relationship with the land by farming industrially rather than organically. And we've lost our understanding of how food really shapes our world. But what are the sort of specific factors that have really conspired to get us to a point where we feel like that connection to nature, to our food is further and further away from us? Yeah, I mean, I think to begin with, it's geographical. So literally, as you said, rightly, we now live in mega cities, many of us sort of tens of miles, 20, 30 miles, even in some cases from a thing you might describe as nature. And of course, what sort of, as it were, the industrial capitalist idea of a good life does is it substitutes what I would call primary pleasures for secondary pleasures. So if, again, under COVID, yet another thing we all discovered is how much we yearn for nature when we can't be close to it. We substitute with a so-called easier life, but one where actually a lot of the experience that we have are secondary. So we might watch movies or we might listen to music, we might eat food cooked by somebody else. But we haven't actually kind of taken a direct part in the process of creating any of that. And actually, as humans, we need to be creative and we need to make stuff and we need to have meaning in life. I mean, I'm sure you will remember before the COVID struck, everyone was kind of money rich, but time poor. Oh, I haven't got time to do that. And many people suffered horribly. But a good proportion of people suddenly thought, hey, hang on. Why was I running around like a headless chicken? I mean, this is fantastic. Not spending three hours in a sort of heated tin can commuting every day. I've got more time to spend with my kids. I can watch spring unfold in my local park. And, you know, they discovered a whole way of life that would be possible and actually is possible. We just haven't designed the world that way. And to your point, you know, maybe before the pandemic, food had become a commodity and one of two things, right? It was either you're caught in the rat race and it was something you were shoving into your mouth on the way to the next meeting, or it was something that we in cities pursued at buzzy restaurants for social cachet, right? But to your point, crisis times change us. And I guess my question is, how can you be so sure that all of the things we've learned is going to hold? I think we got a glimpse of an alternative way of life that actually is possible and would be possible. How can we live well in the 21st century? And the answer is not, oh, just like we did in the 20th century, but with better tech. It's a total rethink that we need. And the rethink is around giving people more opportunity to get pleasure out of, as I say, simple things that don't destroy the planet, like cooking, like chilling out with their friends, like growing food and lots of other things too, making stuff. But our current economy and political system and indeed patterns of land ownership and blah, blah, don't allow that. You come from an architecture background, which I find interesting. I wonder if you've seen cities from an architecture standpoint and lens in terms of their, you know, steel and glass and concrete design and construction. How have they changed by our evolving considerations around food and the way we think and consume it? Cities have evolved over time as we started off talking about. I mean, before the Industrial Revolution, they were highly, highly productive places. 
Most cities were surrounded by market gardens. Most households kept pigs and chickens. Why? Because pigs and chickens are omnivores who can eat our food scraps. So obviously with industrialization, all of that changes. As we already talked about, you know, the places that grew our food were suddenly hundreds or thousands of miles away because the railways made that possible. But cities became less and less productive as a result of all of this is what I'm really saying. And they stepped outside the, shall we say, the organic nutrient loop. Now what we're seeing with this new awareness of, of, and I, I really this began in the 1970s, I would say. So it's not as if people didn't see the problems before. And really that was the beginning of a sort of, you know, what has now grown into the green movement and people saying, oh, actually we need to start growing food in and near cities again. And we need to rejoin city and country together again. And we need to start farming organically, of course. And we're seeing a lot of it in cities now. I mean, actually, I've been to Toronto several times. I mean, Toronto has been a real leader in terms of this kind of whole movement. You were the first Western city to incorporate food policy within your urban government and in your thinking. And you've got a lot of urban farms and great community food projects there. So it's something that big Western cities have tended to cotton on to first. And now, you know, I mean, is catching on around the world. So rooftop farming, vertical farming, all of these kinds of ideas, which is trying to bring productivity back to the city again. To that point, are there any global cities you think are doing a good job as far as this approach and this model that we can learn from? Yeah, there's lots, actually. I mean, something that's also important to say is that weirdly, Cities that haven't even been through this process yet, so cities in the global south, often have much more sustainable food systems, which, of course, they're desperately trying to get rid of in order to modernize, which is just a big irony that food matters, that we have to remember its true value. And that's really, I guess, what I'm arguing for is just that by remembering the true value of food and by basing our economy around it, we can do all the things we need to do in order to address climate change, address mass extinction, address huge amounts of bad health and depression and sort of a lack of a sense of purpose that modern life has created. And we can put all that back by centering our lives around food, which ultimately, of course, very important to remind ourselves is about pleasure. Our bodies are designed to get pleasure out of eating and we can do it three times a day with our friends and family. But, you know, what's not to like? On the next episode of City Space, we're looking at the future of work in our cities. So many white-collar workers spent the pandemic in a remote or hybrid work model, and many of them want to continue, myself included. What will this mean for the future of the office buildings and commercial real estate in our downtown cores? And why is that going to matter to all of us who live in cities? City Space is produced by Julia Delorentis Johnston. It's written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to our guests this episode, Corey Mintz and Carolyn Steele, for lending us their time to record this show remotely. Thanks also to Victoria Kim for help on Korean transliteration. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your favorite city dweller about city space too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. <laughs>